0: Hello, and welcome to Ride the Omnibus. I'm your host, Ariel Baska, coming to you from the International Film Festival of Rotterdam. And I am delighted to welcome Anna Hjort-Gutu, the director of the documentary Manifesto to the show. I'm delighted to talk about your film because my training is actually in education. I was a Latin teacher for 16 years. Latin teacher? Yeah. yeah. Oh, impressive, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But uh, so many things that happen in this film really rang true for me in terms of what's happening with academic systems all over the world with the way that they are being treated. Education as a business model is really such an important topic that no one is really addressing in the way that your film very directly confronts it. And I loved, I loved that. I'm very eager to...
1: Wow, but that sounds super interesting. I mean, and that's what I hope too, that it's not only about a particular school or a particular art education, but to me it's it's really about the development that has been happening the last 20 years maybe in education in general as you say it's very subtle or it, it happens slowly you know so I, I also have wondered why haven't more people reacted to this or written about it and I guess the, the reason is that it's just uh, happening step by step in a way oh yeah no but nice to hear that you like it and that you can recognize it I mean I guess actually I wrote a text as well about the same topic Uh, in a magazine called uh, Kunstkritik and that also had a great outreach actually and people wrote to me from Korea, from Canada, from Australia, from all over the world to just tell that they had experienced the same thing and that they're super frustrated and so this is clearly something that has happened worldwide that has also been hard to a lot of professionals I think in the field.
0: You capture this microcosm of the capitalist nightmare in your film so eloquently <laughs> it's wonderful this particular example that you use is an extreme example but it's a force that is seen yeah. pretty much everywhere
1: And I think it's very interesting to see how architecture goes along with this ideology, that these buildings that we're now moving into, at least when it comes to art education in Scandinavia, I think half of them has moved to new buildings, and they all look the same, and they all have this kind of corporate glass architecture with atria, you know, that you can look down and up at people. It's very totalitarian and very... I don't know, monitoring students, you know, the whole time and combined with the idea that people have to eat in a cafe and that you have to have these key cards and everything all together, it creates this incredibly controlled environment. And converting the process into
0: a product as much as possible. The, the one person you interviewed was saying was trying to create customers out of the audience that it's trying to serve ultimately with this building.
1: Yeah, they become customers and they also become a spectacle in a way when they're working, you know, because they're, yeah. they're more or less made to look interesting when they're working because they are to be looked at. And that's also, I think, deeply alienating for the students. So, so uh, hmm. But you have the same situation in uh, the U.S.?
0: Yeah, we have a very similar situation, especially in art schools. It seems to be quite common that this is happening. I will say in a lot of schools nowadays, pretty much everywhere, they are breaking down walls as much as possible and making it so that there are just partitions between classrooms. Mm. This was happening before the pandemic started. Obviously, in the pandemic, everyone's going to school online right now. But there was also before the last 15 years or so, 10 years. I think it's really been in the last 10 years, there's been a sense of rigidity of Hmm. we will treat this like a business model. Hmm. We will have all doors completely locked. No, you cannot have access to the courtyard to take your students out into the courtyard, because that would lead to crazy communism or something. (laughs) I don't know. Yeah, like Things where we had control of what we did in the classroom and control over different aspects of where we went with our classes have just completely eroded. Mm. For me, like as a Latin teacher, one of my major units is Roman theater. And there's actually an amphitheater in the courtyard. Mm -hmm. And so it's perfect for me to go and do actual discussion of Roman plays and have the kids put on a play out there. Yeah, and I (laughs) kept running into problems with the administration because I would have to go and get the key every time, but I could only get it in the minute before, and I couldn't leave my class to go and get it. The bureaucracy was.
1: Oh yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. It's so terrible, and it's these small details, you know, that makes you also feel controlled and makes you that you cannot go in and out freely, and that you cannot use spaces without a booking appointments. but then you have to do that the week before. And, you know, there are all these little things. I mean, and that's whether they're being
0: used at all or not. Hmm. This space wasn't even being used at all. And and it's this exertion of control, whether it's necessary in any way or not. This This business aspect, hmm. I think your film gets to. I wondered, in terms of your research that you did for the paper, can you talk a little bit about
1: that? Yeah, it's an online art magazine called Kunstkritik, which is international and Scandinavian. And it's also in English, actually. And they they published a series of uh, essays about the development in, on the art scene in general the last 10 years, and I chose then to write about education and the changes in Scandinavian art education or Nordic art education. Uh, And then I went through both the structural changes. You know, we adapted the Bologna model, uh, which is the standardization, standardized kind of uh, European educational uh, system, and a lot of also national requirements to be met with that was suddenly installed also uh, in art education. So that's the kind of structural part. And then there is the architectural part, which is about how the environment looks, how the buildings look, and how they're owned and administered. Because the schools usually owned their own buildings and could decide there how to do things. And suddenly we had this kind of new public management where the schools was, were supposed to hire the buildings from some private owner. And that, of course, also creates a lot of tension because then the school isn't really designed for artistic practice anymore. Mm. And suddenly it gets very difficult to mess around, to use electricity, to use water, to use uh, materials that maybe makes mess or dust. So suddenly it became very difficult to actually be an artist in these spaces and then of course there is also a digital change because now things i mean now it's extreme in the pandemic and also before they started these kind of learning platforms for example that are digital and where you have to sign in you have to create rooms for all your courses you have to be evaluated afterwards you have to report on the courses you have to check your students whether they attend your courses whether they have actually downloaded the texts etc so you can monitor your students now in so many ways. And the administration can also monitor the professors. (laughs) So everyone monitors everyone, and it's not a healthy learning environment. So my text was about this whole process from 2000 until now.
0: And it's that monitoring that's really so disturbing to me as a teacher, because... Fundamentally, the whole standards movement, as it happened in America, was something that happened out of political expediency. Mm. Yes, it's a good thing to have a certain degree of standard that everyone needs to be at. But the problem is that it was applied equally to all subjects, as if all subjects are equal. Mm. And Latin and the arts, for example, are both elective subjects that don't bear any resemblance to, say, your regular math curriculum, your science curriculum, etc. And then you get things like renegotiating the space line matrix and <laughs> yeah. the course That's Great of Course. Title generator, yeah, I totally want to sign up for that class right now. And you wonder where these things come from, but they come from the fact that we think that everything has to be standardized. We think that essentially the job of teaching could as easily be done in a standard way by computers somehow. Mm. Or that a monkey could be doing what we're doing. Alternatively, administrators have to be observing what we're doing every day.
1: Mm. Yeah, I agree. And I think this monitoring is or this control situation all the time that you aren't really given trust. And maybe I feel it particularly bad for the arts because the whole point about becoming an artist is also to learn to think freely, you know, to learn to yeah. be an independent person with a critical mind and with some critical projects. And it's very hard to actually teach that subject to people when you and they are controlled all the time. <laughs> yeah. and, and then there are so many things that you cannot really do. So I think that maybe, especially for the aesthetic education, this is really becoming almost a bit silly. I think it's just so exaggerated. So that was also maybe reason why I wanted to make this. It's not really a comedy, but it's a kind of humorous film, I think, because I just think the situation is ridiculous, you know, and it's it not necessary. And with the arts, you need to
0: be able to question authority in mm. very specific ways and you need to be able to fail in spectacular ways and not just be expected to make pretty art in pretty little boxes Mm. but i loved the line that was the only possible relationship to academia is a criminal one
1: yeah you know it actually comes from uh, the american writer and philosopher fred Moulton. do you know him i don't He's very interesting, and he writes about the university and how the university has somehow become impossible to inhabit, unless you do it in a criminal way. <laughs> <laughs> so I was a, a little inspired by him, actually, when I wrote that, but or when, when I used that line. He's an interesting thinker.
0: It's very interesting. The way that you use the the criminal activities of the people who are inventing systems to go along with the standardized version. And then you have the people who are actually doing the job as it actually applies to the lives of the students. And so this double life that has to take place just to navigate the space.
1: Yeah, but don't you think that that's also I mean, it's exaggerated in the film, but don't you think that most employees or most educators actually have their ways of doing things or their ways of navigating these restrictions and the regulations? Oh, absolutely. But it's much worse now. Yeah, I think we do that all the time. So I was thinking also that the film is an image of that situation that we try to do our best for the students, even if that's not Required. So somehow we always are a little bit disobedient, I think, in these systems. I don't know how it is when you're a Latin teacher, but at least. Oh, it's, I'm incredibly disobedient
0: as a Latin teacher, <laughs> yes. believe me. I mean, especially because I'm the least commonly taught language. I mean, any of the electives generally in America are not considered particularly important because kids can take them or not take them. So we Mm. don't really matter. Mm. And Uh, that goes for the arts, for foreign language. mm, Yes, I see certain special sciences and with languages because languages are very marginalized in America, Uh very marginalized. And Latin is not spoken per se, Uh. or they're not graded on speaking, but they always try to make us, behave as if we were Spanish. They try to give us Spanish curriculum materials and mm-hmm. you know, in our in-services and things like that and make us yeah. answer questions based on Spanish curriculum materials and things like that. Yeah, so okay. we have to pretend yeah. to be working on that oh, when we're actually working on things that benefit us, yeah. if that makes sense.
1: I see, yeah. So that's an example of what I'm talking about, that somehow we, yeah. we always do this yeah, to a certain degree. And I think that's interesting as well. You know, I just read the kind of doctoral thesis from a Norwegian um, sociologist, and he had actually done research on how academics try to navigate in these two restrictive systems and doing a lot of things in the wrong way, actually, just to be a better teacher. Mm-hmm. So it's not like Academics are trying to just sneak away from their, their duties or anything. It's the opposite, actually. You spend more time trying to give to the students what you think they would need or what, yeah. what you think your work is about. And that's what I think they do in the film as well. I mean, they do this because I think they think that this is necessary. We have to do it this way because that's the only way we can give students a decent art education. So that's the situation now that you have to become a criminal somehow just to teach in the way you think is appropriate.
0: (laughs) And in your film also, you show some fantastic cultural performances from the students, from one student in particular with the music and the puppetry and the masks. Mm-hmm. I yeah. wondered if you could tell me anything about that student or those performances.
1: Yes, I mean, the student is a musician, really. Uh, and she was actually, you know, we started this scenography work by creating the kitchen, this mobile kitchen, which you can fold into a wall so that it becomes invisible. And we made this kitchen in a workshop with the students and when it was finished we had a little get together a little party with a concert and Mari Kvien Brudvål who is the musician she had this concert and that was just before the pandemic struck. actually so we were able to have this little party without really thinking about covid at all. But then she was playing and that was so wonderful. So then I decided that she could go into the film as an actor and acting as a student. And I think there is something also about her art being non-material, you know, or uh, immaterial. That because what's, what's so difficult about this environment is that if you act like a student in the environment and you, for example, build a large sculpture, then you are immediately somehow obeying to the demands of the institution. Because then you look like this fantastic art student with a fantastic project. And then you can be looked at and everyone looks at you. And it looks okay and it looks like there is productivity. Whereas when you play music, it's completely immaterial and it just works. Or it just influences people in a completely different way. So I thought it was important to, to have that in the film. The, the kind of power of music. And with this mask, that's the kind of performance and they are actually performing dutiful participants in the system. So they're performing, sitting in the cafe in the right way, drinking coffee in the right way from the right cups or sitting in the meeting room, having a, a meeting. <laughs> <laughs> but then it's very, com- it's just comical since they have these masks. <laughs> so, yeah. so that's also kind of funny and a bit sad I think how they how they look
0: (laughs) but were they trying to emphasize the performative
1: ritual I think my thought was just that they are artists and artists are unpredictable they are uncontrollable and therefore you never know what will come out it could be a performance it could suddenly be music it could just be nothing it could just be that you sleep in the gallery or whatever So, and maybe that was important that the art, the artistic activity that we see is a little bit surprising and a bit off. I also like very much this wool workshop that you can just sit in a a room filled with wool and just grasp the wool and feel the wool and make whatever and invite everyone to do it.
0: I was going to ask you about that next, actually. Yeah. When they talk about building something new and inclusive, those shots that you have within the wool workshop look new and
1: inclusive. Yeah, because I tried to find people who uh, wouldn't normally attend an art school. (laughs) (laughs) So, And I like it a lot because I think it was nice to do it because all the people in the room liked so much to deal with this wool and they were sitting there much longer than they needed and they were just like and it was smelling also you know it smells really strong from sheep wool so it was a really nice kind of confirmation of the fact that people also maybe long for contact with materials you know or contact with with this kind of organic very simple things like smell and feel and touch and just meet and talk so maybe it's also kind of defense for the very simple education that just consists of meeting people, speaking, talking, sitting in the same room, drinking coffee or whatever. Like the salons. Yeah, I think it could be so simple. To me, it seems like they built a very complicated system for education. And actually, I mean, also in Latin, I guess you could just sit with your students and, and talk the language, you know. You don't. That's actually
0: a- what I prefer to do. Yeah. In general. And I've gotten into trouble. <laughs> More times than I can count for it. Okay. Um, I yeah. can say what I like on the podcast now because I'm on disability.
1: Okay. So you, you feel know. free in your podcast. You can say whatever you like actually. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That's yeah good.
0: exactly. <laughs> and Important. and so it's kind of like I can acknowledge these issues now because education is such a hierarchy when it shouldn't be. Yeah. It shouldn't be that we are forced to look at everything from the top down. It should really be Across,
1: across, or even coming from uh, coming from below, maybe coming from.
0: Yeah, it should mostly be generated by students, mm. but then it should also be everyone sort of supporting sideways. Mm. Yeah, I get really angry when I hear from my friends who are still in the teaching profession about how much worse it's getting.
1: Okay, yeah, that's interesting. Hmm.
0: I do find that when like I look at preschools, for example, I've actually looked at schools in a lot of other countries. So like I visited in schools in Australia and Singapore, in particular, and for certain types of schools, in early education, they're willing to do student-generated environments and student-generated ideas about what's going to happen each day. Mm. And that seems to work really well with preschoolers and what we call kindergarten through first grade. Mm. I'm not sure what you call that, but...
1: Mm, yeah, we call it kindergarten, I guess.
0: But, but I've always wondered why nobody really takes this model and works it mm. forward
1: at mm. all. I mean, there used to be, and that's also maybe something that I have looked into a little bit, these kind of experimental alternative educational schools that were kind of common during the 60s and 70s in Europe, at least. And where they tried these different models with, for example, students deciding along with the teachers or, you know, like like student democracy, basically. And uh, also student teaching and general assembly that somehow made decisions and And what I feel is very problematic is that now it's also not possible to actually execute these different experiments because you have to, to everyone have to somehow find a place in the system that is already there. So there isn't this room for experimentation. I mean earlier pre- uh, previously you you had a system. And most schools somehow belong to that system, but there were these possibilities to go outside the system and still get funding, for example. Mm-hmm. And that's also getting now uh, more and more gone. difficult. Yeah.
0: That's gone. To be accredited in America, you can't get accreditation as a school unless you follow these rules. Exactly,
1: yeah. And that has happened also here. So uh, that also makes it difficult to actually prove that you can do things in another way, you know? Yeah. yeah.
0: And in terms of your training... What was your background in terms of your training?
1: I'm uh, uh, trained as an an artist in the nineties, then it was very free and uncontrolled, but also completely, I mean, a complete lack of actually being followed up by anyone. So I was uh, sitting alone in the studio (laughs) and no one really checked if I did anything. So I was there for four years in the art academy and uh, i graduated as a kind of with a kind of diploma which is what's called then and then i became an artist and now i'm also a professor in uh, the art academy in oslo so i see this very closely and that type of freedom which was also i mean it was not particularly productive because you still need people to, to follow you a little bit, you know, to hear what how was it going? Should we maybe talk? Where are the other students? Where are the courses? I mean, it was almost nothing. Mm-hmm. But at least I felt very free and uh, completely responsible for my own education. So, and it had the, the quality of that was that I learned to discipline myself, you know, because otherwise I couldn't really get anything done.
0: The benefit and the drawback to that.
1: Yeah, I think we can make... Uh, educational systems that are just as free but much better than what I had and it was also you know it was very male dominated we had only male professors for example we only heard about male theoreticians or male artists all of that was of course completely traditional so a lot of good things have happened as well
0: it's so hard to navigate the space in terms of how much of it is patriarchy and capitalism feeding into the hierarchy as it's existed? And then how are we starting to break away from these things?
1: Mm. And also very hard to know what is what is capitalism, as you say, what is mainly kind of bureaucracy, which is something yeah. a little bit different. I mean, they go hand in hand in a way, but it's also, you cannot just say this is neoliberal because there is something else, at least in the Nordic countries, it's very bureaucratic and state controlled also in a way. Yeah.
0: yeah. There is definitely a sense of, the bureaucratic hand in hand but in america it's also this very capitalistic notion of we don't want to give you money unless you can prove that you're getting better results every individual year
1: yeah okay and we are not that uh, far still i think it's a bit more democratic or and you know we don't have private benefactors of norwegian education at least so we also don't have to deliver exactly to someone who funds you, which is good, I think. And it's a free, free education. So there, there are these big differences, I guess, but uh, I think the tendency is the same.
0: We have a free education that we're expected, but the government will actually defund schools if they don't continually improve their scores year yeah. to year.
1: Wow. And what do they do then with schools in particularly difficult areas or poor areas?
0: Uh, They shut them down quite frequently.
1: That's completely crazy.
0: Oh, yeah. (laughs) You think? It's ridiculous because you have schools who are the most needy schools in America that they are continually defunding and taking money away from because it's not improving. I mean, what sense does that make?
1: Also because you cannot really improve... Uh, all people in all circumstances. I mean, it's important enough that they attend school at all, you know, it's...
0: Yeah, I mean, and that's Um. where a lot of kids get their meals. Yeah. They're going to eat at all.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: But that's not to say that this whole trend is just extremely disappointing. Yeah. That people just need to wake up to this idea. And I love the way that you plot this idea in your film, Manifesto. And I really want to thank you so much for putting it so succinctly in this little jewel of a film.
1: Mm, Yeah, thank you. So great that you... um, Happy that you like it. And I wish I could be able to show it maybe in the US. So if you have any tips or ideas for... Either a festival, maybe, or an online platform, or it could be an exhibition.
0: I have a couple festivals to to suggest to you.
1: That would be great, actually. Have you seen a lot of films now from the Rotterdam Festival? A ton. Yeah. Wow.
0: And I have to say, out of the short films, yours is probably the only documentary short I've actually watched. I've watched a lot of the experimental shorts and a lot of the uh, sort of narrative, what do they call, dramatic shorts, but I really connected with yours in a way that I didn't connect with a lot of the other short subjects, but I've mostly been watching the longer form stuff, to be quite honest.
1: Yeah. Have you been to the festival when it's um, Not in
0: person. Mm. I'm hopeful that next year I'll be able to.
1: Yeah, I see. No, but then maybe it's actually because, I mean, we all think it's sad in a way that the festival isn't going as as usual, but I think for some people, it's actually great, you know, we're, they're able yeah. to sit wherever in the world and actually see the films. So that's fantastic.
0: Exactly. And additionally, I've been able to travel the world all my life. I've spent a lot of time in Germany as a little girl in scandinavia just a few years ago i never got to oslo unfortunately i only got uh as far as devanger yeah but i really really want to get to oslo at some point i'm just really grateful that the virtual setting has made this possible
1: yeah yeah. No, that's actually working so that's fantastic and and they did a tremendous job actually to make this work because i think they had very little time. Mm -hmm. Platforms are actually working and I can actually access the films. And so it's,
0: yeah, it's, I was shocked okay, how well it all works. <laughs> yeah. like, I, originally, Impressive. I was thinking, oh, you know, bandwidth will be a huge problem and everybody will be watching the screeners at the same time. And
1: yeah, No, I think it works, actually. Uh, by the yeah. way, uh, I, there is an interview uh, on the page as well. So if you would like to use some of that in the podcast, uh, at least you can consider it. I think it was quite an, a nice conversation with a, a French filmmaker about the film. Uh, so if you're interested, you could also watch that one.
0: Excellent. Thank you for the tip. I will definitely check that out. I want to thank you so very much for being so generous with your time. I know we've gone way over time.
1: That's fine. It's interesting uh, to hear your experience as well. And uh, yeah, I'm really happy if the film can make a difference or, you know, just debate some questions. And it's wonderful, I think, to provide such a
0: slice of, this aspect in one sense, but it's so universal and it captures something that is a trend everywhere. I think your film is going to speak to a lot of people. Mm. And I've loved this intercultural exchange that we've had.
1: Mm. This, yes, it's interesting. So thank you. Thank you very much. You too. And good luck. Bye bye.
0: Thank you for listening. And thank you for taking a moment right now to reflect with me on the history of the land you are listening on now. Whether you are stuck in traffic or sitting in your office chair, take the time to look up whose traditional lands you are on now and what treaties govern those territories. I record this podcast on the site of lands stolen from the Manahuac people, I acknowledge that we need to protect and honor the history of the indigenous people from other tribal nations that also reside in Virginia and have made innumerable contributions to our region. I am grateful to work on this land. I acknowledge these facts in the hope that my listeners may join me in honoring our past, present, and future. Without this land, this earth, and each other, we are nothing. We will continue making our rounds of the festival circuit with guests from the International Film Festival of Rotterdam. Before I go, please take 30 seconds now to leave us a five-star review on iTunes or Podchaser. Doesn't have to be anything fancy, just a simple RTO rocks my socks is good enough. And connect with us on Instagram and Twitter where we are at Omnibus Ride. You can also visit our website, omnibusride.com where you can dive deeper into our content and learn more about the show a special thank you to our amazing editor william das we truly couldn't do what we do without him or danielle be well be safe and keep in touch